0: It's time for Moment of Truth, with David
1: Moses. And welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. And of course, you can always listen on the Radio Player Canada app. Just type in ELMNTFM and you are on your way. My first guest today on the show uh, is someone that uh, I've met uh, some time ago. Haven't seen him for a while, but it certainly is a pleasure to have Mr. Charlie Angus, NDP MP from Timmins, James Bay, with us on the program. Charlie, welcome. Great to be on this show. Thank you so much. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, I think we've spoken on the phone once. I know we've ran into each other at a couple of events over over the years and things, and we were just talking about Attawapiskat. There's so many issues that we could talk about the first thing I would like you to do though for us if you don't mind when I was uh, doing a little bit of research on you and I went to your website uh, and I saw uh the the vast scope of the size of the area that you cover you know people hear Timmins and I think they forget about the James Bay part of of the area that you cover and it's a it's a quite a large area
2: well the riding is larger than France or Great Britain yeah. um, it is the eastern section of Treaty Nine. Mm-hmm. Um, so I go from basically the farm belt just around New Liskert, very rural f- families, t- up to Hudson Bay, uh, and then over to what is the you know the the infamous and famous Ring of Fire in the far northwest. And mm-hmm. uh, so many of my communities not available by road, only by flying, yep. um, and Ground Zero for so many of the issues that we've dealt with, uh, you know, on Indigenous files in terms of, you know the the water crisis, the housing crisis, the suicide crisis, but these are also the places that I th- see solutions coming from, so I'm I feel really honored to represent uh, the people across this
1: incredible northern land. And of course Timmins is is the town where a lot of those people would fly in and out of and and pass through. Yeah, and you know, I think what's
2: I've seen a real change in the region in the last fifteen years as I think people get that we're all part of the same reality and uh, i've people in Timmins step up for a lot of issues that are happening. We also have two thousand homeless people in the city of Timmins the size of forty four thousand people. Um, and those are pressures that are coming from the bad housing that's in the far north, um, the broken child welfare systems, mm-hmm. you know, the broken the broken judicial system and dealing with uh, poor uh, indigenous populations. It's not simply indigenous, but mental health issues and that. So they're playing out in the urban areas of the north, like in Thunder Bay, like Sioux Lookout. So what's really important is to find ways that the indigenous and non-indigenous communities say, we're all in this together, we all have to have each other's back. And I think that that's some of the interesting transformations I've been seeing uh, in the region I represent.
1: Is there one thing or a couple of things that still stick out to you f- that people don't understand from the north or or from the riding that you cover? Um, I think just
2: how, you know, when it depends, when you get far north, you're in a, basically in a different country. You're in the land of the Cree. Yeah. Um, and what they deal with in terms of health, what they deal with in terms of education, what they deal with in terms of basic systemic structures that everyone else takes for granted. Mm. I mean, these are third world conditions, and this is not accidental. These communities were set up uh, when the treaty was signed, and, you know, when I was first elected, I went up to James Bay, and, I mean, I remember the late Stan Luton saying, you have to understand the treaty. You don't understand anything without the treaty, Mm -hmm. and I was like, I thought ancient history, Mm. Well, Stan's grandfather signed the treaty. Wow. You know, many of the people that I deal with, their grandfathers signed that treaty. Yeah. And that treaty transforms transferred some of the richest hydro, timber, and mineral wealth in the world. And it's why Toronto, uh, the financial center of Toronto is a world center, is because of that wealth that came from Treaty 9. And what happened to the people, these reserves are not treated as communities. They're internal displacement camps. They mm-hmm. were meant... To get the people off the land, leave them with such few resources that one day they would leave. And what white people don't understand is indigenous people never leave the land. They will never leave the land. They will be there a thousand years from now. So it doesn't matter how difficult you make it for them in terms of lack of uh, basic services. They will never leave their territory. And I think when I saw that, then I totally understood it. And that's the message I'm trying to get the rest of Canada to understand these are the territories of the Cree, the Oji-Cree, the Algonquin, the Ojibwe people in the north, and they'll always be there, and they are the keepers of the land. And the sooner we start working and building together, the sooner we become the Canada we should
1: be. And now you mentioned a couple things, and of course there's you mentioned treaty, and those treaty obligations are one of the biggest things that the government has fallen down on. Well,
2: the, the, the failures to live up to the treaties are deliberate, Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they were, you know, when uh, Duncan Campbell Scott, the notorious, uh, he didn't start the residential schools, but he certainly perfected their, right. their intent. Yeah. Um, you know, he met with the, uh, the Cree leaders in Fort Albany and Moose Factory in the summer of 1905. And he said, we will build schools for your children. And I thought that was a really profound moment because the Cree leaders knew their world was changing. They knew the white people were coming in. When they signed the treaty, it wasn't they were giving up the land. They wanted some security. They wanted some agreements to Mm -hmm. understand how it was going to be. And the idea of building schools, they thought, would give their children a better chance. And we now know what those schools were. They were horror institutions like St. Anne's Residential School and, you know, Serpent River Schools and that. And that denial of rights continues to this day because Duncan Campbell Scott wrote in his notes after they made those promises, that they didn't need proper education, they just needed the bare minimum. And that, in a nutshell, is the application of everything. Mm. The denial of education, health services, infrastructure, water services that are deliberately underfunded so the communities can't succeed. And that is the problem in community after community.
1: And I would, is it fair to say that not only uh, bare minimum or or sometimes putting them in harm's way of of Unhealthy water and and you know just just not not uh, caring where they are.
2: Yeah, I mean I mean ha, it is staggering that uh, people can be put in such conditions in a country in a province as rich as Ontario and you know a lot of the work that I've done recently on Cat Lake exposing mm. that crisis and uh, um, raising the issues of the water crisis recently in Attawapiskat and previously in Kshetchewan. It's when people see photos of children that they suddenly say, right. how is this possible? Right. But they seem to think it's perfectly, not normal, but sad. Sad, but just a reality that people are living with water that makes their kids sick, mm-hmm. uh, homes that make them sick, uh, schools that give them no opportunity. But when you put the child into it, and this is some of the work Cindy Blackstock has done such incredible work and nobody can look at a child in this situation and say, how is this just mm-hmm. And that's the question Canada has to ask itself in 2019. Why is it still happening in communities like North Spirit Lake and Niscandiga, Um, you know, where they're having to medevac people out because 25 years of dirty water is still making people sick. And it will continue to make people sick until we say, enough. Yeah. Everyone has the right to clean water.
1: So, Charlie, there was just election, by the way. Congratulations on your uh, re-election. Well, I th- I thank the people
2: of Tim and James Bay, and certainly the people of the the far north. Uh, the 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 reserves came out. You know, people say Indigenous people don't vote. Uh, they're wrong. They do vote, <laughs> and they are very engaged. And I certainly had a lot of support from them, as I did from you know my blue collar, my rural mm-hmm. community. So I'm I'm
1: honored to be back. Uh, let me ask you this, it, just in regard to that, and say voting. Um, what what uh, because you know sometimes we hear that Indigenous people shouldn't need to vote because of the treaty process, because of that arrangement, because of, because of the relationship from from the Crown or the government to the communities that have signed those, you know, it's a nation to nation relationship. What kind of things do you hear back about that?
2: Well, I understand that and for me that's not a discussion that I feel uh, to be titled to be part of because that's a discussion within the indigenous communities themselves. I'm the elected representative. Mm. But I say to people, uh, the importance of voting is that these are where decisions are being made that affect your communities, and you have as much right as anyone else to hold government to account for the fact that they're not building schools in your community, that they're not living up to their legal obligations in child welfare. So how, you know, within the internals of um, the treaty process and Indigenous communities, deciding how they want that relationship with Canada, that's a decision that's to me is within the nation's. My role is to say, if you want to engage, uh, I'll be your voice, and uh, and let's talk about holding government to account.
1: Okay, and that is the voice you're hearing right now of Charlie Angus. He's the NDP MP for Timmins James Bay. He's my guest here on Element FM and Moment of Truth, right now, and uh, he was just reelected. We just said congratulations to him. Now, minority government, the uh, the things have changed. You just recently sent a tweet uh, just before we got on the air. And uh, it had to do with the the failure of the electoral system well um certainly we
2: um it was a monumental election, and I think um we had some opportunities that were missed, but I can't argue about that. Um, my focus is to go back and fight for justice, and we have right now a prime minister who is fighting uh, against a finding of willful and reckless discrimination mm. against indigenous children in care. And uh, for the Indigenous listeners here listening today, they probably know what's going on with the child welfare system. People outside the communities don't know. It is prevalent. It is everywhere. Children are still being taken from their homes. Families are still being broken apart. The damage that is being done by that broken system is immeasurable. And we have a prime minister who's been found, his government's been found guilty and they're fighting this in court and... Mm. We need some accountability. That's one thing I when I go back to Ottawa, I will be pushing the government to stop spending the millions on lawyers and accept the findings of guilt, accept the fact that this is a broken system, that's been chronically and deliberately underfunded, and start to pay some compensation to children whose lives have been ruined by the system.
1: Do you do you buy into the uh the 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 argument that they're they're saying that they don't it's not about not paying, it's about making sure that it falls into the hands of Uh, of the the people that need it most? Or I I think that I heard a comment about if someone was there for a week, do you want that same amount of money going to a child that was there for years?
2: I think what just has to be said bluntly is that Carolyn Bennett and Justin Trudeau are lying. They're just lying straight face to people because this has been a legal battle that's been ongoing for over 12 years. The government spent millions on it. They knew the issue of compensation was coming. They have fought it tooth and nail every step of the way. Cindy Blackstock and the people who've been leading this fight have tried time and time and time again to say, so how do we work this out? Mm -hmm. And the government has refused. They said, we'll litigate it. We'll quash this decision. So for them to say, well, we're not arguing about compensation. Well, they are arguing. Mm -hmm. They're saying no compensation should be paid. Uh, They're saying, well, we need time to figure it out. Well, they've refused to meet. So I find it really disturbing in 2019 that it's like the old the old forked tongue of the Indian agent still there, that they could stand up and misrepresent what their legal position is to the Canadian people. The Canadian people have a right to know that Carolyn Bennett, Justin Trudeau, that government is saying, we're not going to pay, we're not going to meet, we're not going to do the right thing, and we will fight this and we'll spend millions on lawyers rather than meeting the kids. And that's why this government has been found guilty because they've had years to fix this and they refuse. So that's got to be just put on the table as the facts.
1: Charlie, do you have any sense of, of you know, you just mentioned they'd pay, they'll pay millions of dollars in, to lawyers to fight this, but not pay the children. It, it, it's, it sounds so counterintuitive. Sound, sounds, so, so strange to hear that. And yet what would their purpose be to, to, to do that?
2: You know that is that is such a profound question because it is not within what we see as the Canadian spirit. When I talk to Canadians and I've done many talks about the broken child welfare system, the bro- the refusal to fund education, the ongoing battles against um like the St. Anne's residential school survivors, the willingness to spend money on lawyers rather than fix things and people say but why? And to me it's it is just the deep state of the colonial structure of Canada, that the Justice Department will fight rights for Indigenous people tooth and nail at every step of the way until they're forced into a corner that they actually have to do the right thing. And that, to me, is as true today as it was under the Harper government, under the Cretchen government, under the Martin government. And that has to change because we had a prime minister who was so... The words of reconciliation of Justin Trudeau meant so much to so many people, but people don't believe it now. You know, you mm. talk to the families of Grassy Narrows. They trusted him. They... You know, building a, a treatment center for mercury uh, contamination seemed a pretty straightforward thing. But at every step of the way, it seems the government will fight it, will underfund it, uh, will deny their legal obligations. And we've got to do better. It's got to stop. Mm-hmm. And we do not move forward as a nation till that attitude. The old Duncan Campbell Scott worldview yeah. ends once and for all.
1: You mentioned uh, Attawapiskat. Uh, well, we were talking about that a little earlier. That's another community, I believe. Is of course, we we know about Attawapiskat for many issues, water being one of them, and and. Uh, as I mentioned, you, I, I was up there. Now, is mercury also an issue in their water?
2: No, um, the mercury strictly is in grassy narrows, But okay. there was there is contamination in the water because right. you know this is a water system built in the seventies for a couple of hundred people. Mm. Uh, it hasn't kept up, and I mean anybody who knows anything about municipal water systems, if you don't keep them up and you don't have uh, investments to make them work, they fail. And you know, government seems to think, well, we built you a water plant thirty years ago what 's the problem, Well, mm-hmm. even when they built it, it was built improperly and on the cheap, and it started to fail often soon after it was built. So people live with precarious situations of water in Attawapascat we 've fortunately uh, we had a huge public pressure and a political campaign to force the government to to put some investments in but a bumtung in the Northwest is in the same situation. Nekandig is in the same situation. it is the chronic underfunding. so when we talk about you know, deliberate underfunding. What you end up seeing are the you know the fires of crisis that happen, and people say, "How's it always happening?" Well, if a system is chronically underfunded, it's it's going to light up once in a while.
1: You know, uh, we, I, I want to go back to the tribunal because the other thing that came out of that recently, uh, with with trying to to quash this this uh, idea, was that they are also trying to remove organizations. From being able to represent yep. and now I, i'm wondering you you mentioned cindy blackstock she 's been such a force for kids for so long and and uh, you know she's just doing such a wonderful job, um, taking the government to court and won um, Do you think this is part and parcel of, of trying to get her out of the picture as well
2: uh, the there's zero difference between the Stephen Harper government. And the Justin Trudeau government when it comes to Cindy Blackstock mm. they see her as the enemy um, they want her out of this she has caused them enormous damage because of her uh, her focus and her amazing decency and the fact that Canadians can trust her uh, she can't be bought off she can't be put on the sidelines and she focuses relentlessly on the children and it is clear that the this this government's plan is to try and um, they want Cindy out of the picture. They want to marginalize her, and but, and then they want to marginalize the power of the Human Rights Tribunal. The Human Rights Tribunal is the only tool we've ever had to force government compliance for the rights of First Nation children. I mean, think of that. Never before have we been able to do something like this. And, you know, I would say to your listeners, think of what Jordan's principle is doing in terms of children who are alive today who wouldn't have been alive five years ago And the only reason we have the Jordans' principal decision with teeth is four noncompliance orders, millions of dollars in legal battles, and the fact that children died in Wapakika because the government was refusing basic funding and were found culpable in their deaths. And the Human Rights Tribunal ordered them. uh, When there's a child at risk now, there's a 12 to 24-hour turnaround time government has to have a plan. They never had to do that before. That legal obligation on government has meant that many children are living who wouldn't have lived. Many children have proper medical treatment that wouldn't have had medical treatment. It was the tribunal that forced them, and it's the tribunal that's forcing them to to deal with the broken child welfare system, and their response is to try and quash the tribunal, say it has no authority, and they're going to find whatever way they can to try and marginalize Cindy Blackstock. My message to the government is good luck. Cindy ain't going nowhere. People are not going to let Cindy go anywhere. So just stop it. Sit down and fix it. Do the right thing.
1: It, it's it's surprising knowing that the public, you know, attitude towards this even, that they are, they they feel like they could even take this on. I mean, and, and not live up to obligations that they, it, it's, def, you know, it's very dumbfounding. It's, I, it's, I don't know what to
2: say. it's. A form of psychosis. It's, it's, it's Canadian psychosis. The government is still doing this because I think one of the things that I've really seen in, in the 15 years that I've been in politics and before that I worked with the Algonquin Nation for a number of years um, um, when we had very confrontational politics with government in that because government nobody would come to the table to talk with the communities when I first started working with them. I find that the Canadian people have really moved in a dramatic way of understanding reconciliation has to be made true. They don't need to understand all the ins and outs of the the treaty. They don't need to understand how government funding works. They just need to know there's a problem. Fix it. This is Canada. Fix it. I hear that all the time. Mm. They get it. They're saying, why aren't kids getting the Mm -hmm. same opportunity? Every child in this country should have an opportunity. So the government, to continue with this, old indian agent policy of keeping the people you know on the res, without the rights without recognition of their legal obligations the, the government's legal obligations it's just it's insane and it's a form of you know government insanity that's going to end up i think embarrassing the government once again and costing more in compensation and another generation of children are going to be put at risk so just stop it stop this madness and recognize that you've been found willfully and recklessly guilty of
1: discriminating against children, and stop it. Charlie Angus, uh, NDP MP for timmins James Bay, is my guest on the show. You're listening to Element FM, and this is Moment of Truth. You, you know, Charlie, when you, when you, you, you put things in, in, in that kind of a, a perspective, and we think about, you know, I remember hearing years ago, about how the indigenous population was the largest growing population. Uh, there was an opportunity to bring the population into the fold, bring them, get them into mm-hmm. the jobs that are going to be needed, and instead that didn't happen. Uh, we still know that there's a lack of education and money putting into to education for in, for First Nations, and and there was that opportunity to to help bring indigenous people in, get them into the jobs that are needed, but and i'm just wondering why wouldn't that wouldn't that not that have been beneficial not only to canada uh but to the to the nation on on whole and the government in terms of uh helping to alleviate things on so many fronts
2: oh i think yeah for sure i mean you know when i uh, when i'm saying all these things it may sound uh, bleak and negative but i'm actually extremely hopeful because i see the power of this young generation this young generation they're, they are going to transform They are transforming Canada. There are young leaders like young leaders like Autumn Pelche. Um, you know, mm. I had the great honor to work with Shannon Kustash, and mm. who's inspired kids. I mean, there's a school being named after in Hamilton. Really? Uh, yeah, That's uh, you know, young Indigenous voices who are empowered, who are sure of their culture, sure of their identity. You give these young people the education tools. And they will find solutions that we can't imagine. Mm-hmm. So the question for government is: continual underfunding uh, is like what? What? What nation cuts the wings off its children? Mm-hmm. You know, when they should be allowed to fly, and that's the fundamental argument. The, the The benefit to education, the benefits to offering better services in terms of overall economic development, overall social development, are so clear. Um, to me, it's a government is like they're just they're, – they're, it's like trying to dam up a river. That river is going to flow and that river is going to transform things. So just let's get with it. And that's, that's my frustration in parliament, seeing mm. things that can be fixed that sit on someone's desk that aren't being fixed. That's where I that's, – that's the rage I have because the potential and the power that you see in this young generation is it's really, really exciting.
1: Now, a couple of things that you mentioned, uh, Charlie, that uh, people can, can go and look up and find out more about, uh, Shannon's, Shannon's Dream. Shannon's Dream, and yeah. And uh, Jordan's Principle. You, if you look up those two things online, you can find much more about it and find out about Shannon's uh, story, a powerful young woman from Attawapiskat. They have a beautiful school up there, and, and it's unfortunately uh, came at, uh, at the loss of her life in, in some ways, you might put yeah. say that. Yeah. Um, uh, but... Um, as you mentioned, Jordan's, uh, Jordan's principle is another one of those things. And you'll find, uh, Cindy Blackstock is key in, in, in both those things. And, and as you were, uh, helpful there too, Charlie, um, listen, uh, we're running, sh- uh, close to the end of our time. And I, I just want to know, um, is there, is there anything that's, uh, on your, on your burner that, that you want to talk about or that you, we haven't mentioned?
2: Um, well, you know, the election, uh, was coming to an end and everybody was focused on, uh, you know, the anger in the oil patch and all that stuff. Uh, you know, in North Spirit Lake right now, we have a crisis, uh, a nightmare, uh, a breakdown of infrastructure, you know, isolated reserve calling out for help. We're trying mm-hmm. to get the rangers in. I've been calling the minister, Nishnabiaski nations there. Um, we got to start r- focusing on these things, people. <laughs> like, you know, like communities are still at risk in the far north in many of the communities. You know, we have an incredible young woman coming down from the Nunavut Territory. as one of the youngest MPs ever. Mm. I think she's going to rock things. <laughs> like, there are issues in the far north that we have to get justice, and we need justice now. We, it can't be down the road. It has to happen now because people should not be living in crisis here. So North Spirit Lake is something I'm thinking of, grassy, um, the issues in terms of the child welfare. We and We've got a lot of stuff on our plate
1: going back to yeah. Ottawa. Uh, Charlie, uh, 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 when you mentioned the north, it I made me think of of w- my time when I was up there as, as a journalist uh, in Attawapiskat and also in uh, Akviat. And, um, you know, I remember going out on the land a little bit with some of the people there, and this is like 2000, in the year mm-hmm. 2000, and they mentioned a lake to me where they also used to go, people would go swimming, people would go fishing, and then they said nobody goes there anymore. Mm. And I, I said, why is that? And they said, because it's a dead I said, it's dead. And they said, yeah, there's no fish. There's nothing in it anymore. And I said, well, how come? And they said, because the pollution that is created south comes goes up into the stratosphere, yep. but it rains back down on us up here. Is that the kind of... Th- have you heard those kind of stories before?
2: Well, we know that the... Uh, the t- the territories, you know, the James Bay Lowlands, the subarctic areas areas, they're very, very fragile mm. um, ecosystems. And issues with climate change, issues with pollution, these are things we have to take very, very seriously. And, um, you know, traditional ecological knowledge is something that, you know, mining companies and industry says, you know, they, they put on as sort of like sugarcoating. It's not. Like, you need to have the elders and the people at the table because... Nobody has studied the land the way the people who have to live on it do. And if there's changes happening there, we need to know and we need to have policies that work. And right now, I don't think Canada has got its head around protecting the north. So these, are, these, these aren't anecdotal stories. These are, this is, you know, this is the, 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 the day-to-day news of what's happening in the world of climate change and pollution. And, and I think we've got to be paying close attention.
1: Uh, Charlie, of course, the other thing that you're associated with, or at least uh, I've heard, and I'm not sure if this, this continues to follow you, is that you, you bring this punk rock uh, approach <laughs> to politics. <laughs> <laughs> of course, uh, alluding to your earlier days as a musician, is that you still get those kind of comments coming at
2: you. Well, um, I still think I uh, Joe Strummer and um, Tommy Douglas are my two big uh, political heroes, but I still have my band. I was, in fact, I was just in Toronto recording with my band, the Grievous Angels, and yeah. uh, I still do music, and to me, music is an important part of it and uh you know the punk rock uh thing was you know D I Y do it mm. yourself. Just mm. get down and do it and I put my staff together like I would put a put a band together.
1: So yeah. on your website is that's new material that's on there? Is yeah. that what you're saying?
2: Yeah we're just uh I've recorded eight albums with the Grievous Angels. Well this is our eighth album and before that with Andrew Cash and Lee mm. Tranche was our first band, the punk band but right, right. Grievous Angels is not so much punk but uh yeah. so it's to me I gotta do music. It's I can't just do politics. <laughs> I, <laughs> oh, I actually, gotta... I hate politics. Have <laughs> I said that? I love people, but man, I just, uh, I just, just don't do. I'm not all that interested in the, you know, who gets to go where on the ice in terms of politics. To me, it's about making change for people, and I do that with music, and I do that with standing up and fighting for the communities I represent.
1: And you've also managed to uh, to to get a few books written as well. So congratulations to all the work that you do and everything you. that you. You continue to uh, to do for the people, as you say. Yeah. Uh, but in in, in in and of course, the side to that is that you still do uh, you do a damn good job in politics, uh, yeah. representing those people. So congratulations. Well, thank and, you so much, and all thank the you. best in the future. All right, we hope to be back on one day. Thanks for coming in again. That's Charlie Angus. He's the NDP MP for the Timmins James Bay area. Don't go away. You're listening to Moment of Truth here on Element FM. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. My next guest is Priscilla Setti, and she's a professor of Indigenous Studies at the University of Saskatchewan. And, uh, you know, it's really nice that she has just received a fellowship from the David Suzuki Foundation to study the effects of climate change, or shall we say, climate crisis, on trappers in the, the north. Priscilla is a Cree activist uh, for Native women as well as uh, the environment and rights of, of both the Native and women and environment. And she is director of the Indigenous Peoples Program at the University of Saskatchewan. So, welcome to the show, Priscilla. Thank you. So, uh, congratulations also on uh, getting this fellowship for, from the David Suzuki Foundation.
0: Great. Yeah, thanks. It's a great honor. And uh, a lot of work
1: <laughs> okay. Tell us about that work.
0: Okay, well, uh, over a year ago, I did a policy study for the Federation of Sovereign Nations here in my province of Saskatchewan, and part of that uh, interviews for policy paper was a sharing circle with the northern trappers at their annual general meeting in in the north. Here in Saskatchewan, and I was struck by the um, well first of all, the knowledge base, of course, but secondly by the um, feelings of despair of many of the trappers around climate change, around the disappearing and destroyed environment that they you know had always appreciated during their lifetime of work on the land. And so when I finished the study, which was produced into a policy paper for our organization, I really wanted to do more work on it because it was, you know, maybe a third of the report or less. So I just really wanted to focus on expanding their story and getting it out there, broadcasting it. And that's what I'm going to be doing in this. That's what I am doing in the fellowship
1: so, when did you start this fellowship? When did you undertake this?
0: So, the fellowship began September, and it'll go for a year, and I'm joining two other fellows. Uh, and this is the second year of the fellowship. Uh, last year they had uh, as well three fellows. And so we enjoy the um, support of the David Suzuki Foundation. And for myself and my constituents, I feel it's really uh, a big boost for spreading the knowledge of people who don't get enough airtime or, or media coverage or even, I, I think, it, um, attention when policies are being developed.
1: Mm. Right. Now, now, I I guess the other thing that it does is also brings more attention to the depth of of things that are affected by climate change.
0: Right. Yeah. Yes. That was the intention of these years. This year's fellows was to focus on climate change. As you know, there's a number of uh, national and international accords or activities uh, from the UN to... Local studies. To, <clears throat> I mean, the whole year has been. It seems like just a mob of, of activity, including Greta Thunberg mm-hmm. and uh, other, you know, really prominently uh, acknowledged events throughout the world. Now,
1: something you said in the in the earlier mm-hmm. paper that you did. You, you mentioned the knowledge base. You said you were surprised by the knowledge base. What what did you mean by that?
0: Well, I wasn't. So much surprised by the knowledge base, but the knowledge concerns. For example, um, you know, trappers talked about being unable or unsure of the, the the quality of the ice. For example, when they would go out on their machines or you know traveling into their traplines, you know, ice safety wasn't always a guarantee. Uh, Secondly, they talked about incursions on their trap lines uh, by development and not just incursions but leaving bloody messes, like leaving big messes and um, toxic messes. So there's a number of environmental concerns as well as climate change concerns. They were concerned that young people uh, are not learning as, they sh- they should or they did in the past years gone by, and um, this is in part due to the cost of trapping to get people out on the land, as well as uh, school programming. Although interestingly to note that many more schools are looking to land-based education as a really viable and 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 uh, honorable. Um, Alternative to simply sitting in classrooms.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that is interesting. Now you mentioned the quality of the ice, and what I thought about when you said that was, I guess that you know we think about how climate change is affecting things, but we don't think about how it does that. We think, oh, we know it's warming things up, or it's you know it's doing those kind of things. But but we don't think about when you hear about say this trapper going out on the land the, the quality of the ice that that's an interesting uh, term to use because it sounds like uh, that they aren't sure of what they're even looking at anymore because because of how things are mm-hmm. changing so in other words the, right. the 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 structure of things are are changing it's not just that it's heating up or you know or and not staying cold as long it's that right. you know right down to the to the uh, to the microscopic level, things are changing.
0: Mm-hmm, right, and and things like clear cuts, which absolutely have um, you know impact on on climate. In our province, we have uh, a huge um, effort to clear cut large large swaths of our northern forests. And these are definitely, like just on the weekend, uh, my own community of Cumberland House, the fur block group up there, actually wrote a letter, a very strongly worded letter to the premier of the province to, you know, basically cease and desist from further clear cuts. And they outlined very scientific and local knowledge reasons on why that should stop, why clear cutting should stop as a poor alternative to, uh, you know, economic development. So in in addition to asking or demanding that this method of so-called development stop, you know, we really need to be looking at what are the alternatives? If we, are, you know, have major concerns with climate change, then what are the alternatives? So as a professor, I get to... Uh, teach about those alternatives as well through you know social economies and looking at what are some of the alternatives say to the extractive industry that we 've you know really has created havoc for a, lo- a lot of northern land based people not only in Saskatchewan but throughout Canada and the world. so we see ourselves as connected to you know a number of events globally where People are really using our voices to uh, identify what's wrong with the current method of development, its impact on climate change, and what are some of the alternatives that you know uh, help people cope with diminishing um, employment, resources, etc.
1: Now, uh, the other thing, when you talked about education and you talked about uh, trappers worried about not being able to to get younger people out to learn about these things, uh, the education on the land, uh, what do you know about the number of trappers uh, falling off or how it is affecting the number of trappers?
0: Well, it's not it's not affecting the numbers. I mean, still, like this province has a really strong uh, active activist or activity mm. base among trappers, and for example, uh, they are part of a larger body called the Northern Trappers Association, which is also uh, parallel in the south by Southern Trappers Association. So, th- but the Northern Trappers, as you could understand has, um, you know, different issues, diff- different concerns um, than Southern trappers. But, uh, you know, they've managed to secure some strongholds against development. And it's not only being about against development, but it's really to educate the public about the value of the land beyond the dollar, mm. like the contributions of, Uh, people who understand the environment, the forest, the water very deeply, and seeing their knowledge as a legitimate form of knowledge that in this quickly uh, changing world and disappearing biodiversity, that knowledge is absolutely critical, key, and essential to the survival of humanity. And, you know, groups... Our uh, organizations, like the David Suzuki Foundation, has been educating the public for decades around that. So it's not a new alarmist kind of activity or tactic, but it's something that is scientifically proven that all people have this tremendous base of knowledge that is really urgently required at a time like this. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: Just going to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM on, uh, this is Moment of Truth in Toronto and Ottawa. 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. My guest is Priscilla Setti. She is Professor of Indigenous Studies at the University of Saskatchewan. And we're talking about her fellowship from the David Suzuki Foundation that is going to allow her uh, to study the effects of climate change on trappers in the north Now, uh, uh, Priscilla, with the fact that you have this fellowship and you're saying that the numbers of trappers have not been affected and you said there's quite a bit of activity, I guess that means Mm -hmm. that you'll have uh, quite the opportunity to then travel uh, with some of these trappers and get to see uh, some of these things firsthand.
0: Yes. I intend to um, present my information, well, first of all, to produce a documentary and then secondly, to travel and really uh get this word out about the the need for uh strengthening strengthening solidarity you know contacts between people who are have been impacted by similar uh problems and challenges, but also to you know network and link up on what are the solutions like how do we stop this um, you know the, the kind of uh, development that's been impacting, you know, us locally, but also internationally.
1: Now, you mentioned the documentary and looking at solutions. Uh, do you, do we already know some of those solutions?
0: Oh, we do. Like, I, I mean, what's really kind of pathetic in a sense is that uh, the model of development that we are currently in, capitalism namely. Mm. Is really grasping at straws in the last uh, the last front of development, so called development. And you know there is other ways. There's there's other ways that are represented by the knowledge of our peoples, mm. uh, locally and internationally. There are others other ways of respectful, um, you know, methods of development that is more inclusive and is not just hell-bent on, um, you know, making the 1% of the world wealthier. We have to look at uh, different models of respectful development, and we are doing that. And, you know, the opportunity to work and teach within a major uh, university um, as a full professor here uh, in Saskatchewan is one of those opportunities that I see. The, the You know, the really important linkages between... So-called higher learning and community-based concerns are really number one on, you know, in my regard. And, you know, it's both a responsibility but also an opportunity to educate people who, you know, we do that. We write policy. We write knowledge. We produce knowledge within higher learning. And, you know, we have a responsibility to stand up for future generations. We, so for myself it's a great honor and responsibility to do that and plus having the support of the very powerful and influential david suzuki foundation i'm equally you know thrilled and honored to be part of that
1: yeah it certainly is wonderful that that you were able to get that uh, fellowship and they backed you up and and were able to get you on going on this You talked Mm -hmm. about methods of development a little bit earlier and and you also talked about the knowledge, the great knowledge that indigenous people have towards the land. And in this day of climate change and in this day of going green, uh, I, I still find it surprising in many ways that indigenous people and indigenous knowledge is not necessarily looked at in a way of sustaining uh, this planet because that's what Indigenous people did for tens of thousands of years, is live in harmony yes. with, the, with the world and knew how to live in harmony uh, and not take advantage and not leave a footprint. And that's what it seems we're right. trying to get back to.
0: Yes. Yes. So, and, you know, for those of us attached to um, universities and institutions that produce knowledge, it's incumbent on us to really fight those babbles and... Uh, we call it Indigenizing the Academy, but it's much greater than that. It's like we don't have all the answers as academics. We need to be listening more. And, um, yeah, I'm happy to do that.
1: Now, Priscilla, you uh, you, you are involved with uh, more than, than just this kind of thing. As a professor of Indigenous Studies, you also managed to uh, to write a book, I believe.
0: Yes, yes. It's uh, actually a co-edited book on Indigenous food systems. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my coursework and research focus around um, related issues like the food sovereignty of Indigenous peoples of which there is a global movement. So myself and Dr. Shaila Shukla from the University of Winnipeg will have um, our book produced in early, by February 2020. It's currently at Peer Review. And it's the story of uh, 15 communities across Canada, First Nations and Métis, <clears throat> that are, I wouldn't say revitalizing, but it, it's that's the impact of telling the stories of how communities are taking back their food systems built on traditional knowledge and current activities. So we recognize that this is in direct response to the huge health impact of bad food industrialized produced foods and we are highlighting the stories of hope from coast to coast to coast and uh, it's a very optimistic book of course it also looks my chapter looks at uh, the impact of climate change on foods so we're really excited about that
1: (laughs) yeah that that is very exciting congratulations on that as well Yeah. Now, how long have you been working at the University of Saskatchewan?
0: Well, I have been working with the university since the seventies. But with (laughs) you, of asked, I've I've been here um, since nineteen ninety six. So I'm actually this year um, have semi retired. But of course, there's not. Doesn't look like it in my books. (laughs) There's so much work to do, but it frees me up to do more work in community through, including through the fellowship.
1: Yeah, that's that's great. Now, um, of course, trapping happens uh, as you mentioned. Uh, there's southern trappers, there's northern trappers, and it goes on throughout the year. I'm 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 guessing. Um, mm-hmm. And and are you so? Will you be traveling throughout the year, even in the, the depths of the winter?
0: Yes. Yes, I will be um I, I mean, the most important thing to me is the filming the the recording of mm. the stories of the trappers, mm. but the second part of this will definitely be to uh try and show our eventual film at you know places where you have a chance to educate people who produce films in all genres, so that will probably happen with the second half of the fellowship. Mm next fall. And then I inc- intend to include the story at one or two international and local conferences. Mm-hmm. So to spread the information to my peers at, uh, well, as an example, I'm hoping to present at Scotland in Scotland at the One Health conference. Mm-hmm. I also work with a, an amazing uh, group in Ottawa called Seed Change Canada. And so the work that we do there on saving and protecting seeds uh, sovereignty is related to you know keeping our traditional foods alive. So I intend to use my many global and local net- networks to um, further the survival of our northern trappers.
1: Mm. Now, Priscilla, who do you who do you hope uh, will see this documentary and uh, see the work that you're you're going to complete, and and what do you hope for it to do once it is completed?
0: Well, I'm I'm hoping that it becomes a tool for education, but I also hope it will become a tool for policymakers. I hope it will uh, begin or not begin, but continue the path of reconciliation that Canada is currently on. So I, I see it as a great communicative tool uh, to bring allies and people on board to a deeper understanding of who are Indigenous people in Canada today, what are some of the development challenges, but more importantly, what is you know, the great base of knowledge that exists within our communities as a tool. It's really very profound you know, really very profound knowledge. Mm. So there's a number of uh, angles uh, that I approach it from.
1: Uh, and did you? Uh, were you able to meet with David Suzuki at all?
0: I'll be doing that uh, next week in Toronto, and um, he is hosting a meeting of the fellows with donors. And we'll be presenting our research plans and activities to date. Myself and the two other two other um, fellows and, and in uh, Toronto at the U of T. And I'm sorry, not at the U of T. That's another meeting on that. at. Um, <laughs> but yes, so um, that that's we'll be meeting next week. Right. Um, now, is there anything
1: we haven't touched on that you're doing with this project or, or any other projects that you have coming up that, uh, that you, you feel is important to mention?
0: Well, you know, ultimately this project is about, you know, looking at the role of trapping as a sustainable knowledge uh, area and also what uh, a focus on the safety of the land. And that, of course, includes foods. And, you know, being on this other research path and practice of food sovereignty, that's what it's known as, that this is an issue that faces all humans. And that my hope in, uh, in this project is to, for humanity to see the interconnectedness of all of us. And that really we are very more similar than we are different. And to, to appreciate, um, you know, some of the great racial divides that keep us separate, but that those can be broken down. But also to see um, what the rest of the world is seeing. Like today, we know that there are great disruptive social um, and civic um, events happening today. We're seeing massive uh, demonstrations throughout the world. We see massive fires destroying our environment. Now, this isn't just happenstance. This is something that is a direct cause of of the development of the world. And so, if it's going to change, it's because we each see our role in resisting and producing a better world out there for our grandchildren. Mm. So, uh, that that's my message, that people will continue the path of mutual understanding with the focus of change because we can't keep going on this trajectory. We can't just keep doing the same thing that's brought us to this point. You know.
1: Yeah, nicely said, nicely said, and that's a good, good mm-hmm. point. Uh, uh, Priscilla, uh, just wondering if people wanted to find out more, get more information, is there... Is there somewhere you could direct them if they wanted to find out more on this topic?
0: Yes, they could go to a number of places. The University of Saskatchewan is probably the best place to locate me, um, and so I'm very easy to locate in terms of on the internet and that. Uh, <laughs> to just uh, Google my name, and mm-hmm. there you'll find lots of publications and books, and just you know, email contact and that. Right. And I welcome that, too, because I recognize, you know, there's a lot of us doing this important work. So I really, I um, look forward to, you know, making, creating linkages with people who have these similar concerns.
1: Right. Excellent. Excellent. Priscilla, mm-hmm. congratulations once again on your fellowship from the David Suzuki Foundation uh, to be able to study the effects of climate change on trappers in the north. And we look forward to seeing the uh, finished product that you're going to have. And uh, mm-hmm. I hope, I hope uh, perhaps when it is all completed that you'll come back on the show. We can talk about it and promote it for you uh, once again so that we can get people uh, to, to come out and see it or maybe request it to, uh, to be shown in their community or elsewhere.
0: Thank you. Thank you for the time, too.
1: Oh, you're, the interest. you're very welcome. <laughs> and that uh, is Priscilla Seti, and she's Professor of Indigenous Studies at the University of Saskatchewan. She received a fellowship from the David Suzuki Foundation to study effects of climate change on trappers in the north, and we look forward to seeing that work completed sometime, maybe at uh, the end of next year or so. And um, so you're listening to A Moment of Truth, and this is uh, Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's the show for today. Please tune in next time. And uh, until then, onigihya.